Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. So um, let me do a little retrack because uh, I want to unpack uh, what we're learning about, and this is the basis for rewards. Again, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about rewards. And I, I want to re- refer back to, obviously, 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, according to the grace of God that w- which was given to me as a wide master builder, I have laid the foundation. Again, the apostles and prophets of the New Testament laid the foundation for the teachings of the Messiah, obviously, through the New Testament, and then obviously the book of Revelation gives the king aspect of the Messiah, laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay that which, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, so just to retrace our, mind, uh, our minds back to the understanding of rewards is he's saying, look, the apostles and prophets laid this foundation. And basically what we're, we're understanding this foundation is, is a theological concept of the Messiah. Now the Messiah was predicted, but the New Testament reveals who the Messiah is, and it reveals the three aspects of the Messiah. The Gospels will represent his pro- prophetic aspect Most of the New Testament, in fact, probably 98% of the New Testament will represent his high priestly role. And then the book of Revelation represents the king aspect of the Messiah as he comes back to rule and reign. And then that was also prophesied in the Old Testament. But the New Testament basically impacts it and shows you in chronological sequence what the Messiah is doing at the different intervals in history since his first coming to the second coming and his millennial reign. And so what the Apostle Paul and the Apostles were to do was lay this foundation. And that's what your New Testament's about. It's about the Messiah. It's about uh, the, what the church, that he, he developed the church because Israel's in a timeout, obviously, and we'll come back later on. Okay, so since we know what this foundation is, and he, he, he just says that the foundation is Jesus Christ, but the implication is it's the, the entirety of the New Testament and the Old Testament pointing to the Messiah. Okay, the revealing of the Messiah. So he is basically saying, this is how you have to build your rewards on. You must work on this foundation. And here's what I wanted to go back to this foundation, and basically it's the idea of you must have your theology straightened out. You must not have a lot of gaps in your game. Now we're all striving to have the uh, uh, pure theology, uh, and, and this is given in the idea of the 144,000, the Jewish 144,000 witnesses in the future are said to be without spot and blemish. And it's a, that, that phrase is used for animal sacrifices, but it's used for the 144,000. And it's the idea that the 144,000, when they hit the ground in the tribulation, is they are pure in their doctrine. They don't have gaps in their game. And therefore, they make the the best witnesses, not only to Israel, but to the Gentile world, about the true teachings of of the Bible and the Messiah and proper theology. And so, we strive, using that as an example, a strive to have pure theology, to be without spot and blemish in our theology. That's why you're never to get to the point in your life and saying, I have figured it all out, I know it all, and I don't need to know anymore. 
That is a dangerous concept to get into because I can tell you, if you do that, you will be stuck sometimes in a theological concept that maybe you learned at a church you were at that was wrong or you, you know, somebody in your family taught you that or whatever, and you're, you're sitting there with a theological construct saying, I know it all. When in fact, that's the wrong mindset. The wrong mindset is, can I, is it possible that I might be wrong on my theological construct? And if so, can I adjust to the proper understanding if I'm confronted with it? And what happens is most Christians won't, won't adjust their theological stances, even though they're wrong, because um, they're not willing to learn. And it comes down to being teachable. And, and, and again, we all have to be able to adjust our thinking, adjust our mindsets, uh, to conform to what the authority of Scripture is saying. And if we don't do that, you're not going to have the right foundation. Okay, so if you do not have the right foundation, let's say there's gaps in your foundation about Christ and about whatever theological uh, tenets there are, so what happens is if you start building on a wrong foundation, here's, here's the implication. It doesn't matter how hard you try. So people can give their college try and work really, really hard, but it doesn't matter because you're on the wrong foundation. Okay? So you can sit, for instance, at Pismo or Avila and make a wonderful sandcastle. And you can spend all day making this sandcastle and dial it in. But again, if it's on the wrong foundation, it's going to be wiped out by the tide. It doesn't matter how hard you worked. You were wrong because you had the wrong foundation. It doesn't matter how sincere you are if you're on the wrong foundation. So when you look at the cults, and the cults go from door to door, and the Jehovah Witnesses sit at the park. That's their new tactic now is sitting at the park. Have you noticed that? And they're sitting at the park and no one's going up to them. I don't, it's like a, a terrible methodology uh, because they're not going to get any conversions or anything. But, but here, nonetheless, you, you understand that their motives is it doesn't matter if we get any conversions. It's, it's just a matter of logging hours and then Brooklyn gives me the log uh, that my brownie points get higher and higher every time. So it doesn't matter if they get conversions. It's a matter of how many doors they hit, how many streets they hit, how many, how many hours they sit at the park for no reason whatsoever. But the Mormon guys that come to your door, um, and, and they say to you, I had a burning in the bosom, right? And they're really sincere about it, right? They're very sincere uh, about it. They're not fake. You know, they're sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. And that means that they're building on the wrong foundation. So sincerity doesn't make a hill of beans if you're on the wrong foundation. And again, so we're, going about, we're talking about effort or hard work. I and mean, people like... Well, I've worked really, really hard at this. And so, like, I forget, I'll give you an example. Like, in some of the Catholic churches, especially in, in the Central America, and we've been in there, and there's been times where you can see in Central America that they're crawling on their knees, and they're, they have blood-stained knees as they're crawling in their devotion to Mary. Okay? And, and they're, they're, they're working really hard, and they're sacrificing their bodies for Mary, and they're crawling on their knees, and they're bloody, and, and some of them actually crawl on the ground. And you see this a lot in Central America. You don't see it too much in America, but you'll see it in Central America and Mexico, and, and in, in South America as well. And, and these people are really pouring themselves out. 
but they're on the wrong foundation. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they self-flagellate themselves with a whip of a cat of nine tails across their back. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much they sacrifice if you're on the wrong foundation. Okay? It doesn't matter what church you attend. Most people think if they're part of the right church, then they get brownie points for being part of the right church. It doesn't matter what church you're in. You could be in the right church and not get any rewards. Okay? So your, your, your uh, church attendance um, can help you, but it, it, it may not. And what I mean by that is if you're at the right church and there's right theology, then you're going to grow and that's going to factor into your rewards. But just sitting there, not doing anything and saying, well, I go to such and such church and isn't that wonderful, doesn't amount to anything as far as rewards are concerned. You're just simply doing your duty. And, and so um, a lot of people are, you know, have this myth uh, that if they're the, the, the biggest and baddest, so to speak, in a good sense, uh, church with the smoke and the lights and the laser show and, and you know, the, 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 the pastor's a hipster doofus that wears uh, cut-up jeans and he wears V-neck sweaters and he sometimes rides a Harley and he wears, a, a, you know, a George Michael coat that says freedom on the back uh, that's leather and he wears sunglasses while he preaches they think, well, then I, I must be hip. I, I, I must be at the hip church because Pastor Doofus in front of me is so hip, it makes me hip too. So it must be spiritual because look at all the numbers and look at all that. And, and it's a myth, right? It's a total myth. But yet people believe that. They really do. Um, but, so it doesn't matter there. And it doesn't matter who you are affiliated to. Now, people will think, well, you know, my, my granddaddy, he was a pastor, Brandon, you know that. I don't know if you know that, but my granddaddy was a pastor. Okay, well, what does that mean for you, right? And people will sometimes borrow their affiliations to make themselves spiritual and to make them think that they're going to get some type of reward for that. But it doesn't matter which, who you're affiliated to. It, ha it has to do with what foundation you're building on. So this is the key. So in order to receive all of your rewards... You must have proper theology first. And if you have proper theology, and again, we're not going to be perfect all the time. You know, there's stuff, that, there's stuff that's debatable and we're not sure, you know, on secondary and tertiary issues, right? Um, but um, as far as the main and plain theology, you have to have that straight. If you do not know who Jesus is, that he is the God-man, the Jewish Messiah, you're going to have problems if you don't have a proper understanding of the Trinity, you're going to have problems. And I can tell you this, most Christians cannot explain the Trinity, and they typically explain it in modalistic fashions, and that's going to get them in trouble theologically if you do not understand the role or, or the, the explanation theologically of the Trinity, that there are three identities that are formed and completed in relationship to themselves in one nature, one being but three identities. If you can't explain that, and, and I'm not saying to understand it fully, but apprehend it and be able to say that, and if, if, if you come off and say, well, sometimes God plays the role of the Father, and sometimes he plays the role of the Son, and sometimes he plays the role of the Holy Spirit, you're in full-blown heresy at that point in time. You're, you're a modalist like T.D. Jakes. So, so it's, you, everything matters. You get the Trinity wrong, that's a major problem theologically. If you get the hypostatic union of Christ, that he is the God-man, 100% man, 100% God, if you get that wrong, 
you have the person of Christ messed up, and if you get the work of Christ messed up, like the Catholics do, you're in trouble, okay? Because I grew up Catholic, so the, the Catholic Church had the person of Christ correct. They believed in the deity of the Messiah, the hypostatic union, the Trinity. But they got the, per, the work of the Messiah wrong because they believed that he didn't pay for all of their sins, that you had to pay for your sins through penance and, repent, and, and the sacraments. And if you did the sacraments, then you would get that extra measure of grace and maintain your salvation by doing the sacraments. So it, it was faith plus works. Well, faith plus works is a cult. Okay, that's getting the, per, the work of the Messiah wrong. Let's go to the Church of Christ. My grandma was part of the Church of Christ. And I, I, I led her to the Lord at the end of it, and she knew that it was Christ alone, not baptism that saved you. But the Church of Christ believes that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That's the wrong foundation. You're messing up the work of the Messiah, right? So you have to get the person and work of the Messiah correct. And if you don't, you're on the wrong foundation. And you can just continue on. Um, <clears throat> about all of this uh, and, and look at the cults and the aberrant teachings in, 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 the, in Christian theology. And, and then like, let's take, like, uh, for instance, a, a, a new apostolic reformation, uh, like Bethel Redding, okay? Th that's a cult up there in Bethel Redding under Bill Johnson. You understand that. And, and they, 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 they teach a doctrine called Kingdom Now or New Apostolic Reformation, that there's new apostles, new prophets, and they're going to usher in the kingdom, and, uh, we're, you know, all this kind of crazy malarkey. Um, and, beca and because of that, if you really think you're going to usher in the kingdom, I can, I can already guarantee you what kind of behavior you'll be involved in. And if you think you're going to usher in the kingdom without Christ, I already know what you think about Israel. I already know what, theologically where you stand. If your kingdom now... New Apostolic Reformation and all that other junk, and you're borrowing, you're borrowing from Israel promises made to them for the kingdom and made, for, made to them uh, for uh, the, the tribulation. Like, you're pro you know, like your old men will see visions and your young men will dream dreams or vice versa. I can't remember the, the, the phrase. And remember, they'll, they'll use that and say, well, that's what's happening now. And it's like, no, wait a second, time out. That's Joel chapter two and three, and you're in the tribulation at that point, and that's referring to the Jews. How could you apply that today to yourself? And we'll say, well, well, well Peter used it in, in, in Acts chapter two. Yeah, but Peter was using a drosh. And, and that's what the New Apostolic Reformation doesn't understand. They don't understand Jewish interpretation. And there's, there's uh, the parodies of, of Jewish interpretation is a drosh means it's a literal plus application, which means when Peter is saying this is, this is happening and this is like that, he's not saying it's, the same, it's what Joel predicted. He's saying it's a drosh, that it's like what Joel predicted. It's a drosh. And that's why he references it in Acts because of the coming of the Spirit on the church. But he's not referring to the coming of the Spirit on Israel in Joel chapter 2 and 3. He's saying it's like that. And yet, if you, if you don't understand Jewish interpretation, like a drosh, that's a literal plus application, then you're going to totally misinterpret that and say you're right now we're in it and, and then borrow and steal promises made to Israel and say our prophets and apostles are doing this now and you're totally wrong. Well, if you build on that foundation and you don't understand the kingdom, then where does it end up? You end up, I can tell you this, if you think you're building the kingdom now, those people, those Christians, end up in the same lane of traffic 
as the Marxists and socialists who are building a Marxist-socialist utopia because they eventually come together. They're building the utopia. They're building a kingdom without Christ. Well, I'm telling you what, you're going to end up in the same place because I already know what their behavior is. Their behavior on this side in building the kingdom is social justice causes. That's what will happen. They, and they start taking over social justice. So they're building on the wrong foundation because of that. So the implications of not being on the right foundation are huge, huge. And so all these people, think about this, on the New Apostolic Reformation, or Dominionists, or Seven Mountain Mandates, uh, or uh, whatever, Kingdom Now. All their efforts, because they're on the wrong foundation as far as the kingdom is concerned, all their efforts will possibly be lost because they were on the wrong foundation. To, the, the, the arrogance of thinking that the church is going to usher in the kingdom is beyond measure because only the Messiah himself can usher in the kingdom. Do you really believe that without the Messiah, the church by itself could stop what's going on in the Middle East? Do you really believe it? You've got to be insane if you can think like that. But that's what Kingdom Now, New Apostolic Reformation starts believing. And you're like, wait a second. What's going on in the Middle East is only going to be solved when Messiah comes back in his full glory and power and exercises that power. There's just no other way. There's no other way to clean up this world other than God coming in and saying, okay, time out. We're done. You know, uh, and stopping the whole thing, and which that's exactly what the second coming does. He just puts it, puts it down. But to think that we're going to stop that, I mean, I mean, really, wow. I understand we're to be salt and light, but to bind Satan for a thousand years, the church can't do that. Only Messiah can do that. Uh, you know, all that bind demons uh, to Edom and Babylon, well, only God can do that. The church can't do that, and, and that's, that's way beyond. So you can see how people can get led astray. So foundation is good, and your theology is important. Okay, so let's then move to this as far as wood, hay, straw versus gold, silver, and precious stones. So these are the three the items, and we, we briefly talked about it last week of how your works are gonna be measured by the refining fire of the Messiah at the Bema seat. And again, that refining fire is his judgment, his evaluation of us and our accountability to us. And so what is the difference? So Paul says gold, silver, and precious stones versus wood, hay, and straw or stubble. What is that? Well, all six of them are building materials, okay? And he's, and he's using the analogy of building a, a temple or a building and, and trying to use that analogy to understand how our rewards are, are understood. Okay, so if you compare the, 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 the wood, hay, and straw to gold, silver, and precious stones, you start getting a contrast, okay? And the contrast starts giving you an idea or a clue on, okay, if I am on the right foundation then I have to use the proper building materials when I'm on it, okay? So when you see the contrast, you have then a difference between temporary versus eternal, okay? So gold, silver, precious stones are meant to be in the category of, of, of eternal, whereas 
wood, hay, and straw, if you're building a house out of wood, hay, and straw, that can easily be demolished, pretty easy, so that represents temporary dwellings versus permanent dwellings. Um, if you look at wood, hay, and straw, they're easily flammable, right? Okay, versus inflammable of gold, silver, and precious stones. They can pass through the flames of judgment, okay? So we get a little bit more here. And then you look at gold, silver, and precious stones, uh, uh, you're talking about expensive and versus wood, hay, and straw, which is cheap, and so there, there's more of a clue there that, okay, if it's wood, hay, and straw, it doesn't cost you much. There's no sacrifice involved. If you build a nice house, so to speak, and you use the most expensive material, it's going to cost you, which means you're going to have to sacrifice money for that. So therein lies a clue there that when you do build with the right materials, it will cost you something. So therefore, this comes back to, remember, David buying the threshing floor? I'm not going to offer the Lord anything that doesn't cost me, right? Those types of things, those types of, you see in the Old Testament. And uh, same thing with, uh, remember, we talked about Abraham buying um, the tomb of Machpelah for Sarah to bury her in, and they wanted to give it to him. He says, no, 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 I'll pay full price. It's the concept that when you serve the Lord, there must be some type of sacrifice. It is impossible to even do anything that's worthy of eternal rewards if there's not a sacrificial element involved. If you're doing something and it requires no sacrifice on your part to do it, that's not a reward. Because what, what, what are you giving up? You know, and so um, a lot of people, a lot of times, like I've always said, they serve the Lord when it's convenient for their schedule, when it's convenient for whatever they want to do, and you start realizing, oh my goodness, they're not going to get any rewards because they're not willing to sacrifice their schedule, they're not willing to sacrifice their kid's schedule, they're not willing to sacrifice any time, money, whatever, whatever it is. There are people, do you understand, there are people that refuse to change their schedule to come to church. And they, they're, they're refusing to change their schedule because of money. It's not like, okay, we understand there's people that schedules they can't control and they have to work on Sundays, they work on Wednesdays, or wherever, whenever, okay? We get that. But there are actually people that choose their schedule. You get that. You know why? Because their spouses tell me. Okay, so this is, it's not a secret, okay? Just going to let you know a little inside. It's not like I'm making this up, but their spouses will tell me they intentionally work on Sunday, and they can they choose to do that, and 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 they they and for what for making another buck, whatever, uh, whatever it might be. But they intentionally. It's, so it's one thing if it's out of your control and you work for an employer, it's out of your control. It's another thing if you choose to do that. Okay, so so what what is that person saying? That person's saying that I would rather build my life on the wood, hay, and stubble and get the rewards here in my life rather than have eternal rewards. Okay, fine. That's your decision. But when you get to heaven, don't be shocked when Messiah can't reward you for anything because you chose this life to be rewarded in rather than in the next life. And so it all comes down to what is it costing you to serve Christ? It should cost you. Then the other thing is, when you start looking at the materials, the materials in which you build on, which is gold, silver, and precious stone, refer to godly wisdom in the building materials. Wood, hay, and straw, 
represents the wisdom of the world. Okay? And you'll see this from the book of wisdoms or, or the Proverbs and the, like a, a, the, the different books of wisdom is like Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. You can get some of the wisdom in, in, in Psalms, obviously. Uh, in, and uh, Song of Solomon is a wisdom book, uh, wisdom literature. Um, James is wisdom literature. And so when you're looking at wisdom literature from the Bible, they'll re- will, will, will refer to wisdom as being like precious stones and gold and silver, right? And so when, you, when Paul uses this, he's drawing on the wisdom literature as well. So when you serve Christ on that foundation, you must do it with biblical wisdom, not worldly wisdom. Okay, so let me give you an example. What do you mean by that? Well, I'll give you an ex- a, 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 a real easy example is Rick Warren. Okay, uh, um, Rick Warren used Peter Drucker to get his methodology of how, it, how to do uh, purpose-driven stuff, okay? And, and, and remember, like, Rick Warren would do 40 days of prayer, for Daniel diet 40 days, and was doing things like that. That methodology actually came from Peter Drucker, okay? Peter Drucker got that that methodology from communists, okay? So what Rick Warren was doing was employing communist methodologies in the power of a short campaign, and that's why they had 40 days of this, 40 days of that, 40 days, and we knew it, but no one else would pick up on what he was doing because they weren't willing to challenge Rick because he was getting results. But again, man-made results, not not Holy Spirit-derived results. And so he, in, in using communist techniques to go a mile wide and an inch deep, that's called the wisdom of the world. And then at the end of Rick Warren's uh, ministry, and he just retired, I think last year or the year before, he boasted that he had baptized more people than the apostles and Jesus. And so the arrogancy of Rick Warren using humanistic results you know, obviously made him as prideful uh, to, at the end of his life. Uh, he was worse at the end than when he started because of this worldly wisdom. Look, look I tell you, it's a, it's a formula. And, and it, whether you're using Peter Drucker's formula or you're using C. Peter Wagner's formula for the, the, the church growth movement, which happened in the 80s and, and continues to be the problem today, um, that's humanistic wisdom. So let me tell you the formula, it's real simple. So I could, by formula, make our church quadruple in size, like within six months. And let me tell you the formula, it's real simple. What I would do is I would dumb down my messages to about a second grade level, okay? I I would cherry pick my way through the scriptures, I wouldn't exegete a passage, Uh, I would do topical, okay? And then I wouldn't talk about any controversial thing whatsoever. Okay, right? Exactly. <laughs> but that churches are like this, right? They're here in town, and I know the ones, and you know the ones who are doing it. So they won't talk about anything controversial. They're actually never going to make a, a push for the people to be convicted about what they're doing, about their life, or anything. It's all more of a motivational, uh, self-help type of thing. Um, so, and then I'll, I'll go down to preaching about 25 to 35 minutes, 
Um, and uh, most of the time, I'll talk about stupid stories about myself and my wife and my kids. Because that's what they do. Okay, they talk about stupid stories about them and their wives and their kids. And they spin yarns. But they really will never attack the scripture and let's exegete it, let's go after it, what does it say, yada, yada, yada. And believe it or not, that works. Okay, it produces results because it never convicts anybody, never, never you know, insults somebody or whatever. You'll never have someone walking out on you um, and actually, you'll have a very large church, you'll have a lot of money coming in, and you're saying nothing. That's what we call wisdom of the world. It works, but it doesn't produce spiritual results. It only produces human results. Okay? So, that's an example of what we're talking about. So they can celebrate all they want, and they can, they can have all their money and, and accolades of how wonderful they are, but at the end of the day, when they're at the, the Bema seat, they have nothing. They have nothing because why? Yes, they were on the right foundation, but they used wood, hay, and stubble to build their house. So then, if you bring it down to a personal level, hey, look, man, just because something works, that's called pragmatism. Well, it gets the job done. Yeah, but sometimes in spirituality, um, you have to take the long route. It's not the shortest route. You have to take a long route, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and, and there is no shortcut. But human wisdom wants us to take shortcuts. And if you take a shortcut, what will happen is you'll, you'll, you'll miss out on reward because you took a shortcut. So let me, let me give you an example as far as, um, let's talk about, for instance, uh, leadership, okay, leadership. So in God's economy, as far as his leaders are concerned, usually you'll see a reluctant leader, okay, like a Moses, a slow speech when they're called, Okay, so you have this reluctant leader, and they don't really want to, 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 to do, they count the costs, and they're really reluctant, versus another person will say, I'm ready to go, just throw me in, and I'll do this, and I'll do that, I'll do this, and I'll do that, and they have no experience whatsoever, and they just want to jump in headlong into the deep end, not knowing what they're getting involved in. And, and, and if you start contrasting the two people, the reluctant leader versus I'm all in, I'll just throw me in, you'll start realizing one is working on godly wisdom, the other one is working on worldly wisdom. Because if I want to gain my attention of my employer uh, in the secular world, I have to self-promote, don't I? I have to tell them how good I am, don't I? In the secular world. I have to then show them how good I am. But, and, and then there's gonna, an element that I have to kiss up to them in the secular world, right? I have to play the game. I have to play the politics and whatnot. Here's the thing. People think that they can bring that into Christianity and then they employ it and then the people are stupid enough not to see it. And then they work their way to the top because of that same mentality, and before you know it, you don't have a pastor in front of you, you have a CEO in front of you. 
because that's an employment of secular techniques that fool a lot of people. What you're looking for is somebody that is a reluctant leader, but you do see the gifts. And they don't self-promote themselves because they're humble. The kind of leaders God looks for are humble leaders, not those who promote themselves. And so you'll see this worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. And if, you're not, if, if you can see the difference, you'll be able to spot out the, 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 the secularists trying to make a move in a spiritual environment versus the real, uh, authentic humble servant that actually is, is the one you need to be using. You don't need to promote yourself. It, it, the, the proverb says, if you're good at what you do, a king will recognize it. You don't need to promote yourself. Just do your work and do it well, do it 100% and unto the and you will be noticed. That's what the proverb says. But if you have to talk a good game and tell how, be- how wonderful you are, then you're not. And you won't be rewarded. So here's the thing. Works must be in character of the foundation and, and compatible with the foundation. So if, if, if you're going to get rewards, you must be in concert in your character with what this foundation is. The foundation is Jesus Christ. So your character must reflect Jesus Christ. If it doesn't reflect Christ, guess what? You will lose rewards. You can do all these wonderful things, but if your character is wrong internally, he's going to evaluate that and say, nope, because your character was wrong. It wasn't in concert with me. You, you didn't reflect me when you did these things. You reflected you when you did these things. Okay? So, here is the motivation. So, so, so the big key in and uh, having gold, silver, precious stones versus wood, hay, and stubble is your motivation. Why do you do the things you do? Okay. So here's the motivations. First Timothy, uh, one eighteen through nineteen. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So he calls what we're in, warfare, and that's true. We are in warfare, absolutely. But then he says this, having faith and a good conscience. Now, the idea of faith is not being saved. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the faith, the corpus of theology. So having faith and a good conscience. The way you have a good conscience is that your your belief is in concert with theology. That's what he's trying to say. That, you, you, that you're, 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 you're good um, in, your, in, your, in your understanding of theology and that gives you a good conscience, that you're squared up with the Lord in that. Okay. Then he gives a contrast, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Okay? So then he then he's goes on and says, look, man, there are some believers that have rejected proper theology. For whatever reason they have done, they've apostatized and went into false theology. And there's a lot of believers like that. Is it possible that a believer could, could willingly reject truth and accept false doctrine? Of course that's true. Yes, they do that all the time. And he goes, so what happens to them is they shipwreck their faith. They, 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 they have suffered shipwreck, which means 
But if they're no longer useful, they're not a boat in the water sailing anymore. They're not useful anymore. They're not moving in the right direction. They've run aground. They have stopped in their spiritual life. They're, they have hit the, the rocks, so to speak, and they're stuck because of why? Bad theology. So look what he says. Of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now here's the thing that people get on to me. You shouldn't be naming names, Brandon. And I'm like, well, the apostle Paul did. And there they are. There's some of the guys. He names Alexander the coppersmith. He names, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of guys who went astray. So Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan. Oh, that doesn't sound nice. <laughs> what does he mean? What does he mean? Well, I can tell you what he meant. It's the same thing he said to the, the Corinth church. He said, if you have a believer and they're unrepentant of outward sin, idolatry, sexual immorality, and uh, whatever the, the, the issue might be to bring uh, disrepute on the church and, and make a public mockery of Christ, um, then you're to church discipline that person and exercise church discipline by kicking them out of the church. And he says, basically delivering them to Satan. Okay, he said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so you're putting that person out from the protective authority of the church and you're putting him out to where he has no protective authority or she has no protective authority and then Satan can have his way or, or, with them, uh, her or him, um, to bring them back to redemption. Or not redemption, but um, repentance. Um, and then why? He says, I've delivered them to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So he's not doing this to unbelievers. He says, Himenaeus and Alexander are not unbelievers because you don't put someone delivered to Satan who's in a protective state because unbelievers are already part of the kingdom of darkness. So he's saying, I delivered them. I sent them away to where Satan is because why? So they will, will stop blaspheming. So apparently these two jokers are believers who got themselves in false theology, and that false theology, whatever it was, was causing a blasphemy among them, and Paul says, I'm done. You're being church disciplined at this point in time. Okay, so, so he is saying, as an example, this is what a shipwreck looks like. It's Hymenaeus and Alexander, two believers, because of a proper, improper theology, have now been delivered to Satan. Now, if every church did that, boy, we would have... Uh, a, 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 a more purified church, nonetheless, if every church practiced this. But the reason they don't practice it, because it gets sticky and it gets messy and, and, and uh, it offends a lot of people. Um, so you don't see a lot of this. But we practice it, and that's why we get a lot of people that don't like us, because we call people out on what they're doing. If they're unrepentant, then we, put, we deliver them over to Satan, and we let Satan deal with them. Now, if they repent and they come back, then they come under the protective mercy and authority of the church, and they're protected. But this is what Paul is saying. Now, when they do this, this is where they lose rewards. But the point that, point that Paul is trying to make is this is his motive is to have faith and a good conscience. It's one of his motives. So here's another motive, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, 
to be well-pleasing to him. So there's a motive. I want to be well-pleasing to the Lord. Look at 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. I have fought the good fight. This comes at the end of Paul's life. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, what he's, what, before I get into specifics about that crown, what is he saying? He's telling you his motive. He's telling you, number one, I want to have a good conscience. Number two, I want to be pleasing to him. And number three, I am doing this for rewards because I am looking forward to him giving me this crown. That's what he's saying. So good conscience, pleasing, and reward is the, are the motivations that is causing him to do what he does. Now, what is this... Um, and again, this we'll get into more details about these the five crowns. But what is this crown? This crown is given to those who love prophecy, who love the prophecies about the second coming, the rapture, and and the third of the Bible. That's not preached in ninety eight percent of the churches. This reward for those who love His appearing, those who study prophecy, is given to those like you who study it who understand it. Now here's the thing, tell me this, why would the Lord give a reward for a particular area of study? Why didn't he give a reward? For those who have their Christology down, for those who have their ecclesiology down, for those who have their bibliology down, or their harmatology, or whatever, anthropology. Why did he say a reward will be given to those who love eschatology? Remember, to get rewards, you have to go the second mile. To get rewards, not everyone does them. To get rewards, you have to pay a price. Don't you? Oh, that's right. The area of, of, of theology called eschatology is one of the most difficult subjects in the Bible. And that's why so many people don't know it. It, is, it requires hours of study. It requires in-depth theology. It requires years and years and years of it to understand the pieces of the puzzle because it is not for the immature. Prophecy is for the mature, okay? And those who start connecting dots are able to grasp what Scripture is saying. Those people love his appearing because what, what prophecy does, it, 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 and this is why it's called the crown of righteousness, prophecy creates purity, Hence, righteousness. Because when you think, and he's, Messiah gave plenty of illustrations about this, that when the servants, he says, thought, well, my master's long in coming, and what did they do? They started messing around, didn't they? So what Messiah is trying to say is, when you do not have an expectation of his coming, which because you ignore prophecy, and you don't read the signs of the times, what happens to you spiritually is your behavior 
becomes like the world's. You don't live pure. You don't live righteous, even though you're declared righteous. You don't practically live it. Therefore, the, 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 the reward, the reward's name is linked to the practice. Are you following? It's a crown of righteousness to those who love his appearing. So let me connect the dot. Because if you love his appearing and you study eschatology and you see the signs of the times, it actually creates a benefit in you, a resultant urgency and purity in your life which produces practical righteous living. Okay? So if you produce practical righteous living, you're living different than Laodicea and hence you will get a reward for that eschatology-inspired righteous living, hence the crown of righteousness for those who love his appearing. We'll dig a little bit more on that um, next time. But those are the motives he's working with. So if you have the right motives, then you are building with gold, silver, and precious stones. Okay? Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.